0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church and now here's Pastor Kurt Truxxas. Well, it's good to be back after being gone for two weeks, especially thankful for Pastor Jordan who filled in for me and he allowed me to get a couple more house projects done for the last two weeks and I know you were richly blessed by his teaching. As I was richly blessed by him, I'm so thankful to have him on the team as we can work together across both campuses to do together what we cannot do alone. And this morning we return to the book of Genesis. We left Genesis off as we entered into the summer. and We pick it up here again in the fall. And we pick up Genesis in Genesis chapter 37. And this is a really exciting part of the book because we're going to look at the life of Joseph. The next 14 chapters to the end of this book is just almost primarily exclusively about him. And I'm going to introduce him to you in a moment. You're going to see he he has an incredibly dysfunctional family. And by the way, I, I found that encouraging because a lot of us have dysfunctional families too. And if God can use this bunch of redneck, hillbilly, really strange, messed up people to be the foundation for his people, I guess that means there is hope for the rest of us. Amen? Yeah. You're going to see how messed up they are in a few minutes. But as we look at Joseph's life, what you're going to see is there is really one big overarching Bible doctrine that just just rings through what happened in his world. And it's the doctrine of providence. Now, many of us say Bible doctrines, okay, boring, time to fall asleep, I don't know, what does that have to do with anything But Bible doctrines take on new life when you finally get a chance to see them lived out in how a person's everyday world operates. And we're going to see that in Joseph. We're going to see how the doctrine of providence is lived out. Let me see if I can explain what providence is in a really simple way. Metaphorically, we can say God has two hands. A visible hand and an invisible hand. The visible hand are the ways we see God show up and do special things. For instance, that would be the miracles of Jesus where he visibly showed up. That would be the plagues during the exodus. Visibly showed up. That would be him speaking to the prophets, giving us God's word, so they would be able to say, Thus saith the Lord. This is literally what God broke into this world and told me. Here's the problem. Why God does show up with his visible hand, for most of us, that doesn't happen in our life. We haven't seen miracles. God hasn't spoke to us directly. And so we wonder, God, where are you? Are you ever involved in our everyday world? And the answer is, yes. He's actively involved in our world, but he's using his other hand. His invisible hand. God providentially determined where you would be born God providentially determined who your parents would be God providentially determined the people that he would bring into your life God providentially gave you different gifts and different talents so you can play different roles in his body and in this world. God was actively involved in your life behind the scenes, putting you together, leading you, and bringing you to exactly where he wants you to be to do exactly what he wants you to do. We're not deists. Deists are the guys who said that God built this world and wound it up like a like a watch and then walked away and it's sort of unwinding and God is uninvolved. We're Christians. Christians say from the Bible it is very obvious that God is actively involved in our everyday world even if we don't see what he is up to. And God has an incredibly good plan. And not only does he have a good plan, this is the really big important thing I want you to get out of today. God is sovereign over all of history, over all of our lives, and he is bigger than our lives, and he is even bigger than the sin of our lives. Let me put it to you this way. No matter what happens in our life, God can bend anything for our good and for his glory even our sin. No matter what happens in our life, God can bend anything for our good and for His glory. And this is incredibly important. And here's why. Because if this were not true, we would lose hope. We would get into really bad situations where we have been sinned against, where we have sinned in a really bad messed up way and we would just lose hope and say, now there's nothing good that can come of this. But we don't lose hope. We don't look at our situations. We look at our God who is bigger than our situation. A God who is able to take no matter what has been done to us and what has been done by us. And he can take and he can turn the whole thing around for his good, for our good and his glory and so we don't lose hope. We're going to see this lived out in the life of Joseph over the next 14 chapters and this is such an incredibly important truth that we need to have anchored into our lives every day. Otherwise, you're not going to make it in life. Cuz it's hard. True? Well, Let let's just dive in. Let me introduce you to Joseph and his incredibly dysfunctional family. Uh, let's begin with Genesis 37. Let's look at the first two verses. Now, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. Now, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph, brought a bad report of them. When we pick up this story, uh, Joseph is 17 years old. 2 years before this, when he was age 15, his mother Rachel died. Now, I told you this was a dysfunctional family. You need to realize as we catch up in the story that Jacob, his dad, actually had 4 wives. By the way, men, if you come into church and you bring your four wives with you, we do not recommend this. You will go through church discipline on this one. Uh, How did Jacob end up with four wives? Here's the deal. He actually only wanted one. (laughs) That was the game plan. He ended up serving uh, Laban for seven years to get one wife, but he got tricked into actually marrying two wives. Not a good thing. Not only that, but when these wives were having kids and they started to realize as they were suffering from infertility, what they did is they gave their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah, to Jacob to be additional wives. So the guy ends up with four wives and he is extremely bald. Not naturally, but because he pulled his hair out. That's sort of essentially what happens. Now, Joseph is the only adult age son of Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. It's the one he wanted, the only one he wanted. Now, Rachel had another son, Benjamin, but she died in childbirth. Benjamin is two years old at this point, but Joseph is the only adult age son. And he is the golden boy. He is the one whom Jacob dotes over and loves And all the other kids, they're sort of second-rate citizens. And what he's doing is Joseph is out working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the maids' kids. Can you see a tension beginning to develop already? The golden boy that dad loves working with the maids' kids. Yeah, some of you are seeing this already. Already. Joseph comes home from working in the fields and it says he brings a bad report about his brothers. Let me tell you what he does. He's one of the youngest guys out there and he tattles. He tattletales on his older brothers. They're out there. They're not tending the sheep. They're just making farting sounds with their armpits. They're just messing around. Dad, they're terrible guys. But beyond tattling... The Hebrew here is very interesting because it's the same word for slander. What he does is he makes up bad information about them that isn't even true. So he makes them even worse off than they sh- than they actually are. And who does dad side with? The little kid. The little tattler who's lying. Now, Can you imagine what this is like? Those of you who grew up with brothers and sisters, imagine if your dad showed incredible favoritism to your younger brother and your younger brother, the little brat, tattled on you and then he lied about you and made stuff up about you. What would you want to do to that little runt? Are you beginning to get the picture? That is Joseph in this situation. And it gets worse. We pick up in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. (laughs) That's part of the problem. Because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The first thing we see is incredible favoritism of Joseph. And this favoritism actually goes back a long way. If you were here in the spring, you remember the time when Jacob came back into the promised land and he tried to meet with his brother Esau to try and restore that relationship and Esau came to meet him, we learned, with 400 armed men. And Jacob was freaking out, thinking, Hey, my brother promised to kill me one time, and he's going to kill me now. And so he broke his, his stuff up into true groups. And then what he did is he lined up his family, and he put his, uh, the wives he didn't want, and the children he didn't want, in the front of the line. They get whacked off first. But he put Rachel... And Joseph in the back of the line in the most protected position. Imagine what it would have been like if you were one of the brothers that Dad shoved in the front of the line, the first one to run under the sword. You would have never forgot that. I know who Dad loves. I know what Dad thinks of me. And now it gets worse. The little tattling brat, he ends up with a varsity jacket. And I get nothing. Well, technically it says it's a coat of many colors. And most of us believe that's what it's called. But uh, the Septuagint, by the way, which is a Greek translation used in the ancient world of the Hebrew, says a coat of many colors. The Latin Vulgate, which is an old translation as well, says it's a coat of many colors. But the ancient Hebrew describes it differently. The ancient Hebrew describes it as a long-sleeve Jacket or robe. Now it may have been made of many colors. That's probably true. But it's important that you understand what it means when it was a long-sleeve jacket. Second Samuel chapter 13, verses 18 through 19 uses the same Hebrew word. And it is used to describe the the robe worn by a prince. It is ornate. It is long, it is flowing, it is colorful, but here is the important thing. It is not something you could wear to actually do any work. So guess who gets out of any further work and gets to wear a Gucci jacket? The lying, tattling little brother. In fact, what we'll see is when his brothers go out to the field next time, guess who gets to stay home and cool his feet on the coffee table? The guy wearing the fancy jacket. Can you see where the tension is beginning to develop between Joseph and his brothers? Are you beginning to get a picture of Joseph's character at this point? You just want to squish him, teach him a lesson... He's a little prideful, well, jerk. A lot of people don't want to say that, but that's really what's going on in the text. Now let's continue. It gets worse again. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And behold, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. And his father kept this in mind. So the two dreams, real simple. Number one, you get the, the sheaves, which are bundles of grain. Joseph stands up, and everybody else is in the family, or the brothers, bows down. And... He says, you know, I'm essentially going to rule over your guys. Which it looks that way because he already has the the varsity jacket. He stays home. He doesn't go to work. He's been promoted to management at age 17. Now the sun, moon, and 11 stars means the entire family is going to bow to him. Now here's what I was thinking about as I studied. You know, even if you have these kind of dreams... You should probably keep them to yourself. These are not the dreams you should be sharing at the family dinner table to your brothers and to your parents. It's like poking a stick in their eye. I mean, it does not go over well. Now, I think you're beginning to see what Joseph's character is like. Prideful Terrible brat is what he is. And he tells it to his brothers. Now, you need to understand, is Joseph gifted? Yes. Is he talented? Very. Is he smart? Most definitely. But as you and I know, one of the worst things that exist on this planet is somebody who is gifted, talented, and smart, but prideful and stuck on themselves that is Joseph. This would be like a a football player who comes in as a freshman and all of a sudden he's a really good quarterback and he leads the varsity team to the state finals as a freshman quarterback leading seniors. And he comes out of that and he's thinking he's God's gift to the world. Or this would be essentially a young entrepreneur who does extremely well in business and may have money coming in hand over foot. And how do they look at everybody after that? Like what's wrong with you? Life is easy. These kind of people becomes the absolute worst people to work for. They're toxic, they're they're poisonous, they're painful. And what we are going to see is that the only way to cure people of this, quite honestly, is they need a stiff dose of humility. They need to be broken. They need to be broken deeply in a way that touches them so deeply that their very fabric of how they see themselves and operate is changed. And this is a, what's about to happen to Joseph in his life. God is going to orchestrate circumstances because he is a big God, a providential God, who's in charge of everything, to humble Joseph deeply, to change his character from being a prideful brat to being a humble, wise leader that can handle leading millions of people and saving what is a good portion of the world from famine. And if Joseph doesn't go through these hard times, he is going to be the worst kind of guy to work for. Now I say this to speak to you because many of us in this room have gone through some incredibly difficult times in life. You say, God, what are you up to? Why did I lose my job? Why did my marriage fall apart? Why did the bottom fall out from under my world? You need to know that God is large and in charge of all things. And he even uses those tough times for good reasons and has good purposes in them. He uses those times to change our character, to make us better, more compassionate bosses, to make us more gracious and gentle and loving mothers and wives, to make us kinder and gentler and more loving husbands. And if we had everything in our life go smoothly, we would be just like Joseph at 17 years old. And that's the honest truth. The story continues. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him to the val- from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Notice that what's happened here is that uh, the brothers have gone to work, they've gone off to pasture and shepherd the flocks. But here's the interesting point where was Joseph? At home because he successfully was able to get out of work. But where did the brothers have to go to pasture the flocks? They went to the area of Shechem. Now that may not ring a bell for you, but if you've been around from the spring, it should ring a bell. Remember that Jacob and his family lived for a while in Shechem. And they had a sister named Dinah who went to the city of Shechem. And she was date raped in Shechem. And two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, were so torqued about it, they killed every single male in the city of Shechem. So what's happened is, most likely there's no grass in the area of Hebron. So they brought the flocks to the area of Shechem where they still own land in hopes of finding pasture for their sheep. But Jacob is incredibly worried about his sons going back to this area because nobody likes them in Shechem because they're mass murderers. He's worried about them getting bumped off. So he decides to send Joseph to go check on them. Interestingly, I think, as I'm reading in the text here, it's my opinion, I don't think it's just check on them, but it's like, bring me a report and tattle some more and see if they're goofing off. I know you'll tell me at least what I think is the truth. Shechem, by the way, is 50 miles away from home. 50 miles north is a long way to go. This is what happens when he arrives there. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? Well, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, Well, they have gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Interesting, there's a man who just happens to overhear that the brothers went further north. Fourteen miles further north. And so now what we have is Joseph is going to be 64 miles away from home, which is a long way away from the protective covering of his father. The story continues. And they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We will see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, and they lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors. And they brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loin, and he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, that is, to the grave, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, I told you this was an extremely dysfunctional family. When you see your brother coming on the horizon and the first thought is, let's kill him, that means you come from a dysfunctional home. Honestly, that's truly what is going on here. Reuben, by the way, he's the oldest, and he is capable of some really dark and nasty things. We know already at this point that Reuben has slept with Bilhah. Bilhah is one of his father's wives. Why did Reuben sleep with the older lady? It wasn't out of lust. Most likely, it was his attempt to take over as leader and ruler of the family. So he was capable of that kind of evil. Simeon and Levi... These are the two guys who mass murdered all the males in Shechem. So killing is not a problem for them, even human beings. These guys are totally capable of this. Thankfully, Reuben steps in and saves them. And he says, let's throw him into one of these pits. Interesting background here. Dotham in Hebrew literally means two pits or two cisterns. And what we know about this area was it was rock and there were two massive cisterns dug out in the rock to collect rainwater. What they looked like, they had a small opening, they looked like Coke bottles. You know how a Coke bottle gets skinny at the top, then wider underneath and goes down? Uh, These cisterns, at least one of them we know, went 20 feet below ground. If you put somebody in there, there is no way to get out because you couldn't touch the walls and you had 20 feet above you. So most likely these guys had been looking for pasture, which is why they went to Shechem. They didn't find it. So they went to Dotham, 14 miles north, looking for water in these cisterns, which turned out to be dry. So when they couldn't get water out of the cisterns, they decided, let's throw Joseph into the cistern. And that'll be where he will die of starvation and exposure, and no one will hear from him. It says they stripped him, by the way, of his robe. And this is a very interesting term, because the word stripped is used of uh, skinning an animal. You guys are hunters. You know what it's like to skin an animal and how you tear and pull at that flesh? This is the way his brothers treated him. When he came to his robe, they literally tore and ripped the clothing off his body. No love for this brother. And then they threw him into the pit. Now, Reuben, I, I don't know, for some reason at just the right time, he walked away. Maybe he was doing a potty break. We don't know what it was. But at just the right time after that, what happened was a caravan of Ishmaelites come by on their way to sell goods to Egypt. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Dotham is a city that is on the trading caravan route that goes down to Egypt. And Judah has the idea, let's not kill him, let's make money with him. Let's sell him into slavery. But here's where it gets even worse. All of the brothers agree to lie. They agree to keep a lie to their father about what they did with Joseph for the next 20 years. Those of you with kids, you ever walked around the mall with your kids and all of a sudden your kid gets away and you lose your child in the mall? You know that sense of panic that comes over you in that moment when you don't know where your child is? Take that and multiply it by a thousand. That is the panic that comes over Jacob when he realizes Joseph is gone. Typical morning... In uh, the Bible lasts for a week when Moses died, Israel mourned a month for him Jacob he mourns for Joseph for twenty years, and these guys they agree to keep that lie for twenty years the whole time they know where they sent Joseph. That is evil. I told you these guys were dark and a dysfunctional family. Now, I have a few minutes left. Let me take and give you applications out of this. I want to just focus in on one key, very important area from his life. And that is the doctrine of providence. Let me give you two points out of it. Number one, providence means God is fully in control of life even when it feels out of control. Isn't that true? Did you notice all the little coincidences in this story? That we would call them coincidences, but from God's perspective, they were really his invisible hand lining things up. The drought in the area of Hebron that meant the brothers had to go to Shechem, that was lined up by God. The the concern in Jacob's heart, which sent Joseph after them, was lined up by God. The man in the field who just happened to hear where the brothers were going and happened to run across Joseph when he was looking for them. Coincidence? Or the invisible hand of God lining things up. When Joseph gets to Dotham, what happens? The brothers want to kill him, but Reuben was there by the providential hand of God to save his life. Dotham just happens to be on the caravan route going to Egypt. Interestingly, we know those caravans would pass by every few days to every few weeks, but they happened to be there at just the right time when the brothers were most filled with hatred And Reuben had gone to take a little break. So he wasn't there to save them. All this worked together, the invisible hand of God, to begin the process of humbling and breaking an incredibly prideful and gifted young man. To make him into the kind of man that God would need to be able to save the lives of millions of people and even to be able to save the lives of the brothers who hated him. See, when Joseph looks back on this 20 years later, he realizes that all of this wasn't happening by chance. His life wasn't out of control. It was all part of God's good plan. Look what it says in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here's where I want you to connect. When this was all happening to Joseph, do you think he felt like life was completely out of control? Can't you picture him crying? Can't you picture him saying, God, I had a jacket. God, dad loved me. I was starting to be in management. God, I had dreams that I was going to be the ruler in charge of everything. And now I have an iron collar around my neck. I have shackles around my hands and my feet. My brothers are laughing. I'm a slave. God, this is so out of control. It wasn't out of control. The sovereign, providential God of history had it all under control. And he was doing what is good and great with it. There's another uh, time in the Bible where Dotham is talked about. Very interesting. What it is was Elijah and his servant were in, at Dotham. And the armies of Syria were looking for them. And they had surrounded them. And the servant gets up and he looks out the window. He's like, oh, we've got an entire army surrounding our house. We're hopeless. This is over with. Looking at my circumstances, I have no hope. And what Elijah does is he prays. He says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant. And this is what he sees. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Nothing was going to happen to Elijah that day besides what God had already ordained, because God's angelic army was there to protect him. And I think that if God had opened Joseph's eyes that day, he would have seen those very same angelic armies of fire surrounding him. So his brothers could only go so far and no farther when it came to wanting to kill him. God put Reuben providentially there to save him. You see, when it looks like life is out of control, it's not. The God of history... Has um, his hand over our lives, and he will use even hard times, even the sinful things that are done to us for our good and for his glory. This includes when your business falls apart, when you're diagnosed with cancer, when your spouse leaves you, when you lose a job. God has it all under control. God has a good purpose in those hard times of pain and suffering. And he uses those times to turn us into the kind of men and women who rely on God more and have greater confidence in what God can do. It may take us 20 years like it took for Joseph to be able to look back and say, ah, now God, now I see what you were up to. We may never be able to look back and say, God, now I understand what you were up to with all this pain you allowed into my life. But I'll tell you what, someday when you stand in Front of God in heaven and you get a chance to see that panoramic picture of how God is using you as a Christian what you will understand and say is God your plan was good God I wouldn't have done it any better truly you are wise and now I see the role you gave me to play and why you allowed these hard things into my life at that time God has it all under control Secondly, providence means we don't lose hope. No matter what hits you, we don't give up. We don't give in. God is large and in charge. First point, we don't lose hope no matter how much people sin against us. Who here has been sinned against greatly this morning? I know some people in this room were raped. I know others in this room have incredible emotional scars. I know other women in this room who have been abused and terribly treated by men. I know others in this room who have had spouses cheat on them. And many of you feel like if you can connect with anybody in this story, you can connect with Joseph. Because Joseph had all kinds of terrible things done to him. For the next 20 years, he will be consistently abused. He will either be a slave or in a dungeon from the age of 17 until he's in his 40s. And technically, what did he do to deserve it? Nothing. Abused again and again through no fault of his own. And how does he make it through? Let me tell you. How does he not end up in self-pity and despondency? Here is what he does. He has confidence in the great and providential God of history that even though his life is a mess and through no fault of his own, he can keep going because where is God? God is on his throne. God is bigger than history and he can take all of the junk that has been done to him and use it for his good and God's glory. And in the end of the day, God guarantees he will do that for us. That is why Romans 8.28 is such an important verse. And if you are a Christian, you must have committed to your memory. It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That if you are a Christian. No matter what pain. What trial. What suffering is in your life this morning. God promises to use it for your good. And for his glory. And we need that hope to make it through. When life gets hard. And people abuse us. And mistreat us. Amen. Next thing. We don't lose hope no matter how great our sin. You know, some of you don't identify with Joseph. Some of you identify with the brothers. Maybe you haven't been sinned against greatly, but you have sinned greatly. Maybe you are the one that was unfaithful to your spouse. You are the one that's become an addict. You are the one that has done incredible evil to your family. You are the one that has broken trust with those that love you. And I have to tell you, you cannot go back. You cannot change it. The trust is broken. But here is the incredible good news I have for you. Why you can't change what you have done. God can take your sin and he can even turn it around and use it for good and use it for his glory. That's exactly what God did through the sin of Joseph's brothers. What they intended for evil, the sending of him to slavery, God flipped it around and used it for good, the saving of many lives in Egypt. That's exactly what it says in Genesis 50 verse 20. So even if you have sinned greatly this morning, do not lose hope You cannot write a happy ending to the story, but God can. True? We see this most clearly in the life of Jesus. Jesus, He was incredibly sinned against. He was perfect. He was faultless. He never did anything wrong. He was of infinite worth. He was not just man, He was God Himself. Yet, Jesus was sinned against most greatly in the history of the world. He was accused of what he had never done. He was beaten. He died on the cross. But here is the coolest part. Because we have the great and providential God, he can take the evil that is done against us and remember he can flip it all around for good. Because he used the evil that was done against Jesus to be the very thing that saved us from our sin. Amen? For all of eternity, we are blessed because God can flip evil on its head. Here's the one line I want you to remember. I put it on the bottom of your outline. It doesn't matter how much we were sinned against or how much we have sinned. We serve a providential God that is bigger than sin and he promises to work everything out for our good and for God's glory. I love the fact that God can take the incredible evil that was done against Jesus and turn it to incredible good, the salvation of our souls. I love the fact that God could take the incredible evil that was done against Joseph and use it to break down his pride and make him into a humble and godly leader who can save millions. I love the fact that God can take even the evil that was done by Joseph's brothers and flip it around and use it to be the very means by which Joseph was sent to Egypt to save their very own life. Because this means when we sin greatly or when we're sinned against greatly, God can take it all and flip it around and use it for good. And we never lose hope because God is bigger than our sin. Amen? Dear Jesus, I thank you so much that we were able to get into the story of Joseph. I thank you for your greatness and your size and your majesty that you can even take sin. That when we feel so hopeless in the end of our rope, and you can flip it around and write a happy ending to what is a dark story. Thank you for being bigger than sin, O great and mighty providential God that we serve. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.